It's the Americhips with Kim Monson. Now, while this is all going on, I went through President Trump's speech and uh, Chuck and Nancy's rebuttal. The most important story. The American people finally said enough, and that is why they elected Donald Trump. The latest in politics and world affairs. Britain's version of Medicare for All is struggling with long waits for care. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. Because ideas matter. It's the Americhicks. Dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Welcome to the Americhicks, where we are having conversations. Today is Independence Day, the 4th of July. And uh, so we're going to talk a little history today. Uh, be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. We have all of our shows there. And uh, sign up for our email so we can keep you apprised of all the upcoming events and topics. Uh, but I am thrilled to have in studio with me today, and that is retired Army General Chris Petty. Chris, it's great to have you back. Kim, it's great to be back with you. You know, on June 6th, uh, you were in, and we talked about D-Day. Uh, because you have started a new business. You're an entrepreneur. And you have something called Battle Digest, where you've gone through some of the major battles throughout history. Uh, tell our listeners how you came up with Battle Digest. Well, Kim, I, uh, I, after 31, well, I should say during 31 years in uniform, I, I was one of those officers that believed in bringing my soldiers in for some professional development classes on history, what can we learn from key battles throughout history. So I put together classes for them, and it took me a lot of time, but I thought it was worth doing. So... What I realized in doing that was there's got to be a better way. And so what I did when I retired is I, I put together the resources into a very concise executive summary called Battle Digest, as the name implies. And I published one issue every other month, and people can subscribe to it. It was really targeted for a military audience, but I'm finding that the civilians that like are interested in history really love it because it is... It really hits the key themes, what happened, and you can, in 30 minutes, you can learn really why D-Day was important or some battle was important, what can we learn from it, why does it matter? I need to tell you a little story. I have a, a friend of mine, she's young, uh, she's a teacher, but she is taking her 14-year-old brother to France uh, this summer. And uh, she's asked about Normandy because, you know, I have a, a great love for it, yes. for Normandy because... I was had the great honor to go there with four D-Day veterans, and she said, I want to take him to Normandy, to the beaches. What should I do? And I said, well, the first thing you should do is get the Battle Digest description of D-Day. Right. I think a 14-year-old boy will appreciate it and understand it because she said, I don't think he wants to sit there and read a whole book. And Chris Petty, what I see is I would recommend that parents actually get, get Battle Digest. Yeah. And maybe every few days, you know, have the kids read it and then sit down at the dinner table and just go through it. Yeah. It would be such a great history lesson. And we're not actually sure that our kids are getting all the history out there that they need. So that is just a little plug yeah. for Battle Digest. I appreciate it. And you're right. It's uh, certainly it fits that bill. And it's very appropriate for for high school age kids, uh, even younger, really, because, you know, it's written at a basic level and it's concise and it's easy. In fact, I, uh, there was a high school class that experimented with it as a critical thinking exercise, and the kids really thought it was 
organized in such a way that they they really comprehended it and liked it. So yeah, I think that would be very appropriate. And so give the overview of Battle Digest. You you put the the opposing forces, you know, yep. just explain how that is with each of these yep. synopsis. So, thanks. So I, I wanted to create a consistent theme because, again, the idea is to really uh, simplify military history for the average person or, or again, with the, with the concept, the idea was for a military officer to be able to to really synthesize the key points. So so it is standardized. It has five sections, um, opposing forces, you know, who fought whom, uh, historical significance, why does it matter. There's a strategy and maneuver section, which really is critical because it, it sets the stage for why things progressed the way they did to the battle, which is often overlooked. Um, and so that's that's really important. What were they thinking? Why did they do this? In each of the battles and then I have a tactics of the battle section which really is the detail of the fight um, you know the the action counter reaction of each each fight is fascinating and what you can learn from it and the key moves and then the last section which is kind of the um, you know I think the key to battle digest really is it's it's a section called lessons learned where we try to lay out the strategic and operational level lessons like strategy and principles of war that were specifically demonstrated in each unique battle. And then there's a tactical section, which is more or, more or less, you know, how effectively did commanders, you, you know, react to things or exercise leadership or certain tactical appropriate things of the day. And it sounds like a lot, but the entire thing is 3,000 words. It's and that's astounding. The, that's the beauty of it. It is. Uh, it's amazing. It's an amazing piece of work here. Thanks. Fourth of July, Independence Day. Let's talk about the uh, Revolutionary War. And you said one of probably the key battle was Yorktown. It was from September 28th to October 19th in 1781. Right. And the location was Yorktown, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're set up here. Opposing forces. What's going on here? So let me let me take one step back, and for for anyone who understands history out there, that the the key this is the key uh, bookends. There are two real important bookends to the American Revolution that that most people are sort of familiar with. One is Lexington Concord, which happened in the spring of 1775, and that was the official start. There was a lot of little things, of course, that happened prior to that, but the first bookend was Lexington Concord in the spring of 75. Now, fast forward six and a half years later, because you've got to realize the importance of time here, six and a half years later is the final bookend of the conflict, and that was the Siege of Yorktown, which really was the, the end of the conflict. And even though the Treaty of Paris wouldn't be signed for a couple of years after that, Yorktown really was the final battle. So those two things are critical bookends for our American Revolution. Now, the reason Yorktown is so fascinating is because it is a it is a story of strategy. It's a story of luck. It's a story of, of cat and mouse, especially on the seas with the French and the English. And it's also a story of the critical French support for our American Revolution, which people sort of understand. But boy, in Yorktown, it was decisive. We couldn't have done it without the French. So it rolls up a lot in a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. So let's start then with the opposing forces. Uh, set that up for us. Okay, so so it it... it at the at the siege, there was about 8,000 troops on the British side under the command of General Cornwallis, and on the American and French side, because it was a combined force, which I think we'll touch on, 
There was 17,300 troops, 9,500 Americans, and 7,800 French. So the French were significant contributors to this battle. But leading up to Yorktown, let me give you a little setting in time, because I talked about six and a half years after Lexington Concord. Um, it's interesting that this was, this was the end game of the British, quote, southern strategy, end quote. Um, the British had tried multiple strategies throughout the American Revolution. None of them seemed to work because, really, they, they fundamentally didn't understand the character of this war of independence from the colonies. They thought initially at Lexington Concord they could do some, you know, flex British muscle, march into Concord and seize rebel supplies and cannons and sh shock and awe of the day. Mm -hmm. And they thought that, you know, cut off the head of the rebellion in Boston, go sh demonstrate the power of England, march inland and capture stuff. And, uh, you know, they thought that their first strategy was kind of a shock and awe and we'll cut the head off the beast and, and we'll be done. That didn't work. Uh, and so they shifted strategy over the years. And Yorktown is interesting because it's the end of their last strategy. But their second strategy, some people are familiar with, they tried to cut the colonies in half along the Hudson River. And then their third strategy was, okay, that didn't work, so let's try to seize Philadelphia, the center of power uh, and governance, and that will end the revolution. And that didn't work. And so, so a very frustrated general, Lieutenant General um, Sir Henry Clinton was Britain's commander-in-chief in the theater for, you know, the, the theater commander for Britain in the colonies. And so he said, okay, this, is, this stuff's not working. He was frustrated because by 1780, you know, the year before Yorktown, this conflict had become a stalemate. The, Br the British still had the advantage in sea power, uh, lines of communication, supply by sea. So they held some strong cities like New York, uh, Savannah, and Charleston. And uh, so they had the advantage, but, th but it was a stalemate. The Brits couldn't move very far from their logistical bases supplied by the sea, and so nothing was really changing. And logistics, that's one of yeah. the things you talk yeah. about. That is absolutely crucial. It is crucial, and it, it ties to strategy so closely, and this is a perfect case in point. And so a frustrated Clinton basically said, okay, I'm going to look south, and, then, and the new strategy will be, I think there's plenty of loyalist support. Loyalist, in, in this case, means loyal to Britain. More, there's more loyalist support in the southern colonies, and we can move an army down there in, in size and force, and we can convert these loyalists, and they'll come to our aid, and we will divide the colonies by basically dividing the south from the north. So that was the genesis of the southern strategy. So Cornwallis invades uh, Charleston in um, the summer of uh, 1780. They successfully siege, uh, take Charleston, and then he leaves Cornwallis in charge to execute his southern strategy. So Cornwallis is doing a lot of things. Uh, Nathaniel Green, who many of your listeners know the name, who was appointed by Washington to command the South, um, and he was starting to wage a very effective guerrilla war against Cornwallis. And so Cornwallis's forays into the inland countryside weren't going so well. So Cornwallis retreated for supplies and all that. And meanwhile, Clinton's saying, okay, we need to also build a base at, the, at somewhere in the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay for future operations, a naval kind of base where we can resupply. Typical British thinking at the time. And that sort of, that was part of the chain of events that led to Yorktown. So that's a little bit of the scene setting uh, on the strategy side. 
Um, and then uh, the leading up, leading up to Yorktown, though, is the real story. Because the siege itself was executed well. Washington had the expertise of Van Steuben, a Prussian mil military officer who was an expert in siege warfare, and um, Lafayette, uh, you know, was uh, very familiar with uh, siege warfare. So, he, so the siege, although it's best known, wasn't the real story of Yorktown, because that was almost just a by-the-book siege that Washington was smart enough to execute with his European allies. Um, the story was the, the cat-and-mouse game and the maneuver and the strategy leading up to Yorktown. Okay, I tell you what, let's do uh, retired Army General Chris Petty, who is the brains behind Battle Digest. We're going to go to break. When we come back, let's talk about this cat and mouse. That was something that, you know, Washington was unconventional, and I get the feeling this was pretty unconventional. So let's go to break. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We'll be right back. It's baseball season, and Hooters is the spot to be this summer. Enjoy Hooters beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool down this summer. Love their nine items for 9 bucks, 11 to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and, of course, their boneless wings. So you can dine in or you can get food to go delivered to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. All AmeriChicks sponsors are an exclusive partnership with the AmeriChicks and are not affiliated or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson and grow your business, contact Kim at AmeriChicks.com. That's AmeriChicks.com. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect your private property rights. Karen Levine believes in home ownership. Since losing her mother to breast cancer, Karen Levine has helped to organize a local fundraising event called Karen's for the Cure, raising money for breast cancer research. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. So call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of Kim Munson's sponsors, but you can't recall their phone number. Find a full list of advertising partners on AmeriChicks.com. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation, and we're having a conversation today. It's Independence Day. And thrilled to be talking with retired Army General Chris Petty, he is uh, the founder of Battle Digest, and we're talking about the Battle of Yorktown, which you said is uh, probably the most decisive battle in the Revolutionary War. Yep. Before we went to break, you mentioned uh, cat and mouse maneuvering. So, you know, set that up for us. Okay, thanks, Kim. The, like I said, the, the interesting part of, of Yorktown isn't the siege itself, although that's well known, um, because by the time the siege happened, it was 
really almost a foregone conclusion, and I'll, I'll explain that later. But the interesting thing, the big story of Yorktown is the maneuver, the deception, the cat and mouse, especially on the sea between the, the British and the French Navy. And so I'll try to walk you through that just briefly. Um, so when, when France entered the war, uh, France sent a contingent of soldiers to Newport, Rhode Island um, in, in the summer of uh, 1780. Now, they sat there, and then they went, because they didn't really have a strategy at that point. They didn't really, they hadn't met with Washington yet and formulated a detailed plan. But the next year, in May of 1781, Washington and Rochambeau, Rochambeau is, is a name known to many of your listeners, he was in command of the French forces, and he subordinated himself to Washington to as part of, you know, building a good alliance in, in cooperation. Um Washington and Rochambeau met to discuss strategy in, in May of 1781, and they also knew that they were going to get French naval support. The French and the English were skirmishing in the Caribbean over, uh, you know, the the sugar trade and things like that. So, you know, this was not an isolated conflict, as most people know. There was a lot of things going on in the world, and, you know, a quick segue back to what I was talking about earlier with Britain changing strategies – they were also they had also siphoned away troops from the Americas because they were dealing with threats in Europe they were dealing with threats in India they were you know they were fighting you could say this was a little bit of a world war uh, and some people have said that and so so the naval action is happening down in Haiti between the French and the English and the French because they pledged support for the Americans in in 1781 said okay We've sent troops, and we are also going to detach our naval squadron from the Caribbean uh, to come up and support Washington uh, during, during this next campaigning season. And so when Washington learned of that, they met, Rochambeau and Washington met to devise a plan. Now, Washington, he wanted to attack um, Clinton at New York. Washington really thought that New York and Clinton's army was the center of gravity of the British effort in the colonies. Rochambeau disagreed. Rochambeau said, well, we really should go south, maybe in the Chesapeake area, because the, the Brits aren't as well prepared there. Uh, we, can, we can really uh, attack against enemy weakness instead of strength, like New York, because New York, uh, Clinton had had years to reinforce New York. So the two had a healthy disagreement and debate. In the end, Rochambeau deferred to Washington, um, and they said, okay, we'll, we'll launch the attack on New York. And both commanders, both Washington and Rochambeau, sent messages to their most trusted subordinate to get things ready for the plan. So Washington sent his message to um, the Marquis de Lafayette, who was commanding U.S. forces or American forces down south, to let him know that they were going to attack New York. And meanwhile, Rochambeau sent his message to the Admiral uh, de Graves, who was, or de Grasse rather, de Grasse, who was the French Admiral down in Haiti. The funny thing here, this is a twist of history that people don't understand, is Rochambeau, in his note to Degrasse, said, I have agreed to, I'm paraphrasing, of course, mm -hmm. you know, I have agreed to Washington's plan. However, and again, big paraphrase here, um, it might be convenient if you could t only go as far as the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Really? I'm not kidding. This is a little bit of a controversy of history, but it's, but it's, it's well documented. So Rochambeau sort of tricked Washington 
in a way, to his own strategy by sort of suggesting to the French fleet commander, eh, if you can only go as far as the Chesapeake Bay, we'll probably have to meet you there. Okay. Isn't that interesting? So, so the interesting thing is now when the reply came back from uh, de Grasse, the French admiral in the, in the Caribbean, and Washington received it, he said, oh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll do the attack at the Chesapeake Chesapeake Bay Area. So Rochambeau kind of got his way in an underhanded way, and it was critical. So, I mean, it all worked out great. But it's, it's, you know, I think it's a little bit controversial. I think it's interesting. Okay, question. Mm -hmm. You're a retired general. That probably wasn't a good thing for Rochambeau to do, was it? Well, it turned out to be a great thing that Rochambeau did, if you really think about how it played out. I mean, if Washington would have attacked Clinton in New York, it could have been tough. Yeah, he probably wouldn't have won. Uh-huh. And the French fleet probably couldn't have stayed on station long enough to make a real effort because it was further up north mm-hmm. and the British Navy would have been prepared. So so to me, that's the first key to this whole strategy, angle, and interest of, of Yorktown. Okay. It's so, astounding when you really think about is. what these people did so that we can have a barbecue on the 4th of July. It is amazing. And just how circumstances lined up and conditions were certain, certainly right at different times to make these things work. It's fascinating. So Washington and Rochambeau marched their army. They made the deal with Admiral de Grasse that he would meet them in the Chesapeake. They marched their army south. But here's the next piece that I think is really interesting. Washington was smart enough to create a very good deception plan during his march south to, to support... Um, Clinton's preconceived notion, because now Clinton knows what's going on. He knows that the French army and Washington are rallying in, you know, between Newport and Connecticut and upstate, mm-hmm. up, upper state New York, I should say, you know, an hour or two uh, drive north mm-hmm. of New York City. Um, he knows that they're rallying. So he knows that the, uh, the rebels are going to attack New York. That's his preconceived notion. Mm-hmm. So what does Washington do as he moves south? He does a very detailed feint to New York to convince Clinton the attack's coming on New York. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. So they, 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 they uh, procure local supplies. They rent boats from the locals, you know, like we're going to mm-hmm. come across the river and invade. So by the time Washington's army has moved south another day or two, it's, it's too late. That is significant. It's too late. It's very significant. Part of this cat and mouse mm-hmm. game. If Washington hadn't done that feint to hold, to fix, as we call in the military, to fix Clinton's forces in place, Clinton could have intercepted that march. But by the time Clinton knew about it, it was a few days too late. He was behind Washington. He wasn't going to totally abandon New York, of course, Mm -hmm. because Washington left forces up there, too. But it was too late to react. He was behind Washington and Rochambeau's march south. So, I mean, it was brilliant, a brilliant piece of the execution of what I think is this great strategy puzzle of Yorktown. So they continue to move south. Now, meanwhile, the French Navy, here's another interesting thing. The French Navy comes up from, so de Grasse sails up from, I believe it was Haiti, the Caribbean, sails up with his, and I I have to look it up on my sheet, but it's like 28 28 frigates, Mm -hmm. uh, ships of the line, etc. And so it's a sizable force. In fact, by the way, I think Yorktown represents the only time in the revolution that the French had a naval superiority over the English. So that, again, another piece of the puzzle. So the French sail up to support, as promised, in de Grasse's letter to Washington. And here's another interesting thing. 
De Grasse is smart enough as a naval commander, he doesn't take a direct route. He does his own little feint. He sails east because, remember, De Grasse is fighting uh, a naval commander named Hood in, in, in Haiti in the, in the Caribbean. And so Hood is going to notice if the fleet's gone. Probably. The French op- opponent's gone because he's got his own sentries and, you know, locals and all that. So de Grasse sails east as, a, as his own feint. Now, this isn't coordinated with Washington. This is just a naval commander doing good stuff. So as he sails east, before he moves north up to Chesapeake, by the time Hood figures it out, it's a few days later, and Hood says, ah, he's gone. He's going up to support Washington's attack on New York or, or the Chesapeake or whatever. So he follows him up north, and he goes to the Chesapeake Bay first. He's beat the grass to the Chesapeake. So you follow? He's I getting this now. He when I was beat, reading it, I didn't understand yeah, how insignificant this yeah, was. Yes, very significant. So, so the English commander beats the French commander to the Chesapeake, and he finds an empty Chesapeake Bay. So he goes, "Oh, uh, he must be on his way to New York. He's ahead of me." So he sails up to New York. Wow. A critical piece of this play. It's amazing. So by the time De Grasse slips into the Chesapeake a few days later. He owns it. He's in it. it. You know, it's hard to get a fleet out of a bay if, mm-hmm. if the fleet owns it. And so, so de Grasse now owns it. And the British commander Hood is sailing up to meet um, the other British ships up that are supporting Clinton. Okay, so for a novice yeah. like me now, I, I, I'm trying to follow you, but so yeah. now de Grasse <laughs> owns the Chesapeake Bay. So yes. that means that, that the Brits can't get in there. That means that... That's right. Then, that then he can give naval support to right. what's going on. He's starting, he's starting to set the stage for the final checkmate of Cornwallis. Now, it's not set yet because okay. a couple other really interesting things happen. So, Admiral... Okay, you know okay. what? We're going to yeah. keep that as a cliffhanger. Okay. We're going to go to break. And uh, so we're setting the, the chessboard here regarding Yorktown. This is Kim Munson with the Americhicks. I'm talking with retired Army General Chris Petty about Battle Digest. This is these fabulous 3,000-word synopsis of major battles throughout history. But we're going to go to break. I can't wait to hear what the next thing is. We'll be right back. Good. Hey, Jason McBride, what is on your mind today? Well, Kim, I know that on a lot of your recent shows, you've been talking about the importance of clear communication, and I think that clear communication was one of the reasons uh, that we were able to defeat the British and be ready for them coming. Uh, Most people, I'm sure you're familiar with the famous midnight ride of Paul Revere uh, when he went riding through the night shouting out, the British are coming, the British are coming. Of course you're aware of that, right, Kim? I am, yes, So, well, there's some dispute, you know, of course, by experts that like to take the fun out of everything. (laughs) Uh, They say that that wouldn't have made any sense to the colonists because everyone at that time thought of themselves as British. So they say instead Revere uh, spread the message by saying the regulars are coming because the British troops were called regulars or redcoats of the king's men. Uh, I don't know if that's just someone's opinion or historical historical fact, but, but I, I think if he'd have been running around urgently screaming the British are coming, people would have known what he was talking about, yeah, don't you? I, I do, I do. So uh, here's an interesting fact, though. I know you've heard of Paul Revere, but have you heard of William Dawes? No. 
and almost no one has. And actually, there were three riders that night, uh, Paul Revere, William Dawes, and another fellow. Now, this is an anecdote. I can't remember where I read it or heard it years ago, but I think this goes to the point of clear communication. Dawes isn't remembered because uh, supposedly he was very nonchalant about it. He was another rider that went out, but he wasn't writing or yelling at the top of his lungs. He was just kind of coming in and uh, chatting and maybe having a cup of coffee and telling people, well, we need to be ready. The British are coming. So his ride didn't have anywhere near the effect that Paul Revere's did because he had a simple, easy-to-follow message that sparked people to action, and that was to just loudly shout, the British are coming. Wow. I did not realize that story. But to your point, clear, concise communication, getting to the point gets people to action. We need to remember that. Thank you so much, Jason. You betcha. Well, everybody have a wonderful Fourth of July, a great Independence Day. And remember that we live in the best country in the world. And Kim, I would rather be here in the USA on our worst day than any other place in the world on their best day. Hey, Jason McBride, Presidential Wealth Management, wishing you a very happy Independence Day also. Don't miss Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Join Kim Munson with the Americhicks at Water's Edge Winery in Centennial or Colorado Cork and Keg in Castle Rock. And now introducing Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins at Ginger and Baker. Kim Munson with the Americhicks would like to thank Presidential Wealth Management Loveland for sponsoring the new Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins. In Denver and Castle Rock, Kim would like to thank Presidential Wealth Management Denver and YourTownTaxpayers.com for their generous support. Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Sign up today at Americhicks.com. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He Trembling out the village where the grapes of wrath are stored. Welcome back to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com, and sign up for my emails. All these shows are on my, on my website. Uh, thrilled to be having a conversation with retired Army General Chris Petty. And uh, Battle Digest, this is so interesting that you have broken down many of the major battles throughout history. And uh, for Independence Day, we're talking about Yorktown, which was probably probably the most important battle of the Revolutionary War. Now, now, Chris, you'd actually said that uh, DeGrasse, the ad- admiral, I guess, that, yep. that instead of going directly up to the Chesapeake Bay, right. which... I think, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'd want to get there as fast as I can. Yep. He goes east first, and it was a great move. Do you know why, why did he do it? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not a naval tactician by any means, but I can only imagine that effective naval tactics of the day were um, if you are in sight of your opponent or in the same area of your opponent and you're going to sail away to go do something else that your opponent might react to, it would be smart to throw him a little off balance by changing your direction, mm-hmm. going okay. maybe an opposite direction or a different mm-hmm. direction. Maybe because he went east, he was trying to trick 
Admiral Hood, who mm -hmm. was the English admiral down there, to think they were just going back to France, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. would make sense, resupply, whatever. Um, and so that, that's, my, that's my take on it. Um, but well, that and, was a, and deception. If you yeah. can tr trick your opponent into not being at the battle, you're going to save a lot of lives and have a much yes. better chance of, of success. That's right. And deception back in these days was, I, I mean, we use deception today very much. But back then, you know, there was no satellite imagery. There was no GPS tracking. There was no, uh, you know, launch the UAV and keep an eye on them. So if your enemy was sailing east... Your first reaction might be, "Oh, okay, they're going. They're going to go east for a while." Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it, it made sense, and it was critical because, as we talked about uh, before, the fact that um, Admiral uh, Hood, who was sailing up in response to Admiral uh, De Grasse, and I know the names hopefully don't confuse your listeners, um, th that was critical in setting some of the conditions that would lead to the final checkmate of Cornwallis uh, at Yorktown. So to continue the story, so so now we have uh, Admiral de Grasse, the French admiral, sitting in the Chesapeake, ready to support Washington as his, as his troops and Rochambeau's troops move south. So they are now already harassing Cornwallis, who is preparing his base now at uh, Yorktown under the instructions of Clinton. He He's now building a naval base, but now the French are in the bay harassing him, sinking a couple of his little support ships, and they're also, quite importantly, moving up the, uh, the Chesapeake Bay up north to now start transferring troops from their long march down the bay because it's a lot quicker and easier. So some ships are going up to now transfer troops down to support Lafayette to hold Cornwallis in place. So they have enough troops coming down now where Cornwallis is reluctant to try to break out. And maybe we'll touch on this later. Corn Cornwallis is a little overconfident here. He still thinks the British Navy is going to is strong enough that he, he doesn't have to sweat it yet as he sees um, rebel forces gathering under Lafayette, trying to hold him in place on the peninsula. Um, but it's all playing. This plan is coming together. Now there's a couple of key pieces that still have to fall in place. So we have Admiral de Graves in the Chesapeake. We have Cornwallis preparing his defenses and building his base at Yorktown. We have Lafayette, who under instructions okay, no, from... De Graves, de Grasse. I'm, I'm yeah, confused, so I'm help sorry. me out on that. Help yeah, me out on it's, that. It's, it's, uh, it's Admiral de Grasse. Okay. I'm sorry. Graves is uh, the English commander who's going to come into play next. Okay, got it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Graves and de Grasse. Yes, I it got is it. a little okay. confusing. Um, so you, you keep me honest on the words, too. I'm working on it. Yeah, so, so de Grasse <laughs> is the French admiral. So de Grasse now owns the Chesapeake. His fleet is in there harassing Cornwallis. Cornwallis is preparing his defenses. Lafayette, who's, again, Washington's commander down there with around 4,500 troops, is sort of holding Cornwallis in place so he doesn't just have free reign. But Cornwallis is, is building in the base as ordered, and he's not yet worried because it's only Lafayette and 4,500 troops. He hasn't learned yet that Washington and Rochambeau have given Clinton the slip in New York and are ahead of him. He doesn't him. know. He doesn't know yet. He doesn't know yet. Okay. Yeah, so still kind of the pieces are falling into place. Now, the next critical piece is, so we talked about Hood Sailing up to meet mm -hmm. the, the commander of the English uh, fleet is Admiral Graves. Okay. okay. Admiral Graves works for Clinton, essentially supporting Clinton 
in New York. So when Hood sails north, now he falls under Graves. So Graves is the English admiral. Now, they are worried about another French contingent under the command of Admiral de Barris. One more name, sorry. One more name. Admiral de Barris is the other French fleet commander. Now, he has been instructed by Rochambeau to load the siege guns from Newport. These are French siege guns, critical to Yorktown, and more troops and bring them down into the Chesapeake to support the siege of Cornwallis at Yorktown. So now you've got you to gotta realize that here's this other French admiral up in Newport, Rhode Island, who has to now sail past the British and get into the Chesapeake while the English fleet under Graves is now going south to, um, or now going to try to intercept him so he can't get into the Chesapeake. So, okay, a very novice question. Yeah. They didn't have radios. They didn't have right. cell phones. Right. How did they get these messages to each other? They sent faster ships, if you can believe it. They sent faster ships, smaller ships, to send messages between the fleets. Wow. Yeah, and, and it worked. So, so all this is going on in the Atlantic seaboard, you know, off the coast. And well, the, and, okay, yeah. one other question, though. If a commander would send a message, he, he wouldn't know for sure if it was uh, successful. Right. Okay. That's true. That is true. Um, in fact, another thing to rewind just a minute, um, one of the things that's also interesting is, and I failed to mention it's another one of these interesting pieces of this whole Yorktown puzzle, is Washington's letter to Lafayette was intercepted by the Brits. So Washington's letter talked about the attack on New York because that was his plan at the time before he got the message back from the French admiral from the Caribbean. So, again, it tilted Clinton's outlook to, hey, they're going to attack me in New York. So I mean, it was that was a stroke of luck. That actually. was luck. Yeah. So back to the back to the the uh, adventure on the sea here, uh, because it's so important to Yorktown. So now you have this other French admiral under instructions to bring the important siege guns and the rest of the troops down for the siege of Yorktown. And he has to now work his way past the British, who are now united in mm-hmm. their fleet mm-hmm. and looking for him. So they know he's going to head towards Yorktown because they know now that Admiral um, Admiral DeGrasse never went north, and he certainly they got didn't there go. And he wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, that's so that's what they thought initially. Yeah. But when they went to New York, they realized, okay, they're attacking the Chesapeake. So, so now the English are trying to get to the Chesapeake and also cut off this other French contingent who has the siege guns and the troops that are going to support. So here's another interesting thing. Or the other little piece. So this other French admiral, De Barris, now, mm-hmm. he also does his little deception operation, and he heads off to the east as well. Now, I, it didn't fool the British, but what it did was when the British sailed down to the Chesapeake, they encountered, they saw, um, they saw uh, de Grasse's fleet in the Chesapeake. Now, de Grasse responded by coming out to battle. And this is a critical battle called the Battle of the Capes. But they never found de Barris. They didn't, they bypassed de Barris. He was out east doing his feint maneuver mm-hmm. before he went down to the bay. So again, that let him escape the British fleet sailing south. Um, and it, just another little piece that got set up here. So, so de Grasse now sitting in the bay sees the English coming. He sails out to meet him because here's de Grasse now thinking, okay, um, I have to attack the British to let de Barris into the bay. I have to get the British out into battle, into open waters, so de Barris can slip in. Okay. Because without the siege guns, 
the siege oh, ain't going to work. The siege ain't going to happen. It's so, and the extra troops. So, I mean, this is just intricate little chess here. So, so uh, DeGrasse, smart enough to know, he better react quickly to the English and get them out. Get them out into open waters so DeBarris can slip in. Now, the English don't exactly know what's happening, or they probably wouldn't have done this. So they accept battle. They float out east. They do the Battle of the Capes, and the Battle of the Capes was from 5 to 9 September. So it's okay. prior to the siege, of course. And these, these ships basically slug it out for a while. The Brits actually have a little bit of, I mean, the, the French, for the first time, have a little numerical advantage. The battle's essentially a draw, but they're both, you know, ships are hurt and, 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 uh, and some destruction, and they sail. They float off east for a few days, matching each other. Meanwhile, Debera slips in behind them. Debera slips in behind them into the chest because nobody's guarding it. The British are floating out after this battle with, uh, with de Grasse. So that DeBarris can slip into the into the Chesapeake with the guns and the troops, and offload with Washington and Rochambeau, another key piece now is set up, and so the the British Navy never saw it. He slipped in, delivered his supplies, and stayed in. DeBarris got tired of floating, knew that DeBarris probably had gone in by now, so he went back to the Chesapeake. And the British really wounded ships at this point sailed off. It was too late. Okay. So now they own the bay, and they've delivered the supplies. What's so, going through Cornwallis's mind now? At this point, he knows that Washington and Rochambeau are on their way with the full armies. He now knows that the French controlled the bay and the British Navy has been repelled. So he is now worried. And this is really the checkmate. I mean, that, that's the checkmate. When the, British Navy, when the British Navy has to sail off and de Barris has floated in, and now the full French fleet of, of the Americas now controls the bay. Mm-hmm. And Washington and Rochambeau's army are right up the, you know, up the, uh, the isthmus from uh, Yorktown. It's checkmate. It's really checkmate. So that's what I think is really interesting about Yorktown is all of that playing out by some luck and some chance, some tactics, some deception, the whole strategy thing up front with, between Washington and Rochambeau and the feint and, on New York to deceive and, and fix Clinton. That all set up Yorktown. Okay, just a quick question before we go to break. Yeah. Tomorrow we will be talking with um, William J. Federer, and he's done this amazing book about all the, the times that d- the divine provider, Providence, has possibly, well, actually hasn't possibly, they may, that has actually had his hand on the American Revolution. It's also maybe called luck, but there's a lot of things that really got into place to make this happen. Do you have any comment on that regarding as from a the, general the hand of Providence? You got it. Yeah. Well, I'm a big believer in the hand of Providence. And, uh, you know, this, you could look at Yorktown through that lens very easily and say, all of these things had to play out that way perfectly for the decisive battle of the American revolution. And they did. So some people would call it luck. Some people might call it Providence, but, uh, it's, it's all there for the viewing. Well, and Washington, uh, I think he really, uh, he acknowledged the divine provider on all of that. Um, Let's go to break. We have our final segment. So we are now at the siege of Yorktown. So tell us about that and then uh, just how that came to to bring about the the end of the Revolutionary War. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We are talking with uh, retired Army General. Chris Petty regarding Battle Digest, and that's battledigest.com where people can get this information, right? That's right, battledigest.com. Okay, great. We're going to go to break. We'll be right back.
Hey, have you ever wanted to ride in a real World War II warplane? Oh my gosh, we have a very exciting giveaway for you. The Collings Foundation is bringing their Wings of Freedom World War II warbirds to the Northern Colorado Regional Airport July 12th, 13th, and 14th. You can visit a World War II camp complete with a tank, jeeps, and all kinds of things to go through. But here's the most exciting part. One lucky listener will get a ride on one of the World War II warbirds. If you're 18 years or older, go to my website, americhicks.com, and sign up for the July 9th drawing. Are you feeling lucky? Again, go to americhicks.com and sign up. It will be quite an adventure. Come join the 88 Drive-In for all your favorite blockbuster movies. We're open seven days a week. Admission is only $9 per person and children under 12 are free. Friday, June 28th through Thursday, July 4th, features will include Toy Story 4, Godzilla, and Aladdin. And remember our popular Monday through Thursday pizza special. Get one 12-inch pizza served fresh and hot from our oven and two tall, cool 16-ounce sodas all for only 12 bucks. Plus, now you can top it all off with our new sweet, crunchy churros and a steaming cup of hot chocolate. For more information, go to our Facebook page or visit our website at 88drivein.net. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Want a chance to ride in a real World War II warbird? Go to AmeriChicks.com and sign up for the July 9th drawing. Welcome back to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. This Independence Day, we are having a conversation, a fascinating conversation, regarding the Battle of Yorktown, the Siege of Yorktown, which was a decisive battle in the Revolutionary War. And in studio to tell us about that is retired Army General Chris Petty. And this battle digest that you have put together, just very quickly, it is fascinating. I, I think people should sign up and talk with their kids about this at least once a week, go through these battles, because you can learn so much. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nice? really, no, not, not for my business, but, yeah. but, but history. I mean, this stuff is it's interesting, and it's part of our common heritage, and it unites us. And so, yeah, understanding uh, even high school kids, what happened at Yorktown? You know, that's, I think that's important. Well, and, and to that point, you know, in America, if you create something that people find value for and they're willing to ch- uh, trade their hard-earned dollars for, that's called entrepreneurship. And that's another one of the beauties about Battle Digest. Is you've created something that is of tremendous value that I would highly recommend that people uh, trade their hard-earned dollars for and have these conversations with their kids. So last segment here, Yorktown, you've set it up. It is really a chess game. Yes. It it has been a chess game to this point, and Cornwallis is really, at this point, he's realizing he's in trouble. Uh, And once the French are in the Gulf, and he knows that the English fleet had to sail north, and now he really understands that Washington and Rochambeau are marching upon him, um, 
he's he's kind of in checkmate, but he doesn't quite realize it yet. But the noose is tightening very quickly. Um, he might he might have had a little time to react here before Washington and Rochambeau fully assembled and the French fleet had owned the uh, the bay. the bay. Uh, he might have been a little overconfident at this point, thinking the French Navy would still be able to crash in and you know and rescue him. But but the noose was tightening quickly. So um, on the 26th of September, the Allied forces were fully assembled. So that is Washington's army, Rochambeau as a subordinate, but also the French piece of that army. And by the 28th, they were advancing on Yorktown. And already on the 29th, they had him surrounded. So the news tightened very quickly at this point. So now it was going to be a siege. There was no question about it. Cornwallis sent urgent pleas for help, but Clinton was... Uh, and explain yeah. to our listeners what a siege is exactly. So a siege is in warfare when you basically surround a city or a fortress and you are going to force the enemy out or, or to surrender through bombardment and starvation and all I mean it's a broad definition of siege okay. but I think I think your listeners probably get the idea that is a that is a tactic to take a fortification or a city is a siege mm-hmm. tactic um the verb being besiege so um now Cornwallis wasn't idle I mean he had prepared his defenses he was preparing an English uh, or British base anyway and so he had earthenworks he had he even built readouts that uh, come into play and are part of the part of the famous or famous part of the story of of the Americans and the French taking readouts 9 and 10 Alexander and what, what is a readout A readout is a forward uh, observation post firing position that lo- that discourages your enemy from advancing on a on a broad front so so if you put a position out and fortified it before uh in front of your position essentially that's a readout mm-hmm. okay. yeah um, and what that does is it lets your sharpshooters and uh, skirmishers engage with the enemy, disrupt them before they can come closer for artillery ranges and things like that. So Cornwallis had prepared a good defense, but he only had 65 guns. He, he had limited resources uh, on hand against this overwhelming force now that was descending upon him. They always counted on the British Navy. That was... Part of the backdrop of the American Revolution is the British Navy always was there to support and resupply and also fire from, from the sea uh, mm-hmm. to support their, their uh, plans. But now that was being deprived of, for Cornwallis, and that was, that was very important to the outcome. So the siege, was, the siege began on the 29th, I think formally on the 29th. The Americans and the French surrounded the city. People were assigned different sectors, and then they started building siege trenches. Now, at, the t- at this time, you had to protect your guns and get them into position in range to start battering the enemy, basically the, the, the forces and command structure inside the, mm-hmm. the city or the fort. And so you had to dig trenches so they were safe from enemy fire, and you could still set up your siege guns and get them within range to actually do some damage. And so they did their trenches textbook. Like I told you, Van Steuben uh, was there to, uh, to help supervise. Um, and uh, Rochambeau also had great experience with siege warfare, very European uh, tactics at the time. Because the Americans probably had never really no, done something they, like they this really, before. They really hadn't done these kind of formal siege warfare tactics, and they didn't have the guns. That's why de Barris's arrival was so important with mm-hmm. the French siege guns. 
so yeah, that Washington really relied on his two foreigners. Mm-hmm. You know, you could call it advise and assist from you know the foreigners like we do today in the Middle East. Uh, we relied on that in the American Revolution. Um, so so the siege is now ongoing, and Cornwallis does try a couple of desperate uh, gambles during the siege. There's a famous story about. Alexander Hamilton, who we all know, uh, one of mm-hmm. our founding fathers and authors of Federalist Papers, um, he was he led the the assault on Readout Ten, which was, which was, Readout Nine and Ten are part of the story because the other readouts were were secured fairly quickly. In fact, um, um, Cornwallis knew that he had to shrink his perimeter a little bit because of the overwhelming numbers, and so he abandoned some of the readouts and the the. Uh, Washington's forces took them and mm-hmm. turned them against them. But, but the famous part of the story is readout 9 and 10, which had to be stormed, and they had to be taken. So the French were given the honor, and I mean that at the time, given the honor of storming readout 9, and the Americans were given the honor of storming readout 10 because they had to be taken to get the guns up to the final range to, uh-huh. do, the, to do the final damage to make, make Yorktown surrender. And, it, I mean, it worked. But that's part of the famous, you know, piece of the story is the storming of Readout 10 and Alexander Hamilton led the troops and all that stuff. So a good little subplot. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So the siege unfolds very, very uh, like clockwork, very, um, I'd say, uh, chaperoned by the Europeans who knew what they were doing. And Washington was smart enough to uh, take their counsel. But uh, so Clinton, or not Clinton, but um, Cornwallis tries two basic gambits towards the end because he can't just surrender and he's got to try to do something. One is he sends out a foray, uh, an attack party to capture the guns, spike them. And he's, uh, he's largely successful, but he can't follow it up with anything. They're, they're repelled and the guns are firing again later that evening. So it wasn't decisive, but Clinton tried to do something. And then the last gambit of... of Cornwallis. Uh, yeah, yeah, Cornwallis, mm-hmm. so thanks. There's so many names. Yeah, there are so mm-hmm. many names in this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Cornwallis' last effort is he had, for, he had fortified uh, Glau- Gloucestershire Point across the, the bay there. It's a narrow uh, area connecting, well, not connecting, but making Yorktown cl- as close to land mass as possible on the north. It's called Gloucestershire. Gloucester Point. He had fortified that with a commander named Tarleton, who was made famous in uh, Mel Gibson's movie The Patriot. You know, he was that dragoon that was kind of the the bad guy in the film. So Tarleton was one of uh, Cornwallis's right hand men. Um, so Tarleton held out that little point, and and he had sent over enough boats in the night uh, prior to transfer a thousand troops over. So Cornwallis had a plan to get at least a 1,000 of his troops out north to a little bit of a breakout. But uh, stormy seas, bad weather actually scuttled. Providence. The whole, yeah, again, <laughs> providence and, and luck. And, you know, um, Clausewitz would call it the luck in warfare, which is hard to predict. So uh, that plan was scuttled. And then, and then, yeah, and then it was some finer, final artillery fire, and the white flags came out, and the British marched out in, in you know, tails between their legs and this this was a decisive defeat i mean the shock waves of around the world around the world the shock waves of yorktown were clearly echoed in the halls of british parliament and it was the final straw they said we're done you know we're, we're not doing this anymore wow. 
So, I mean, it was truly the decisive battle of the American Revolution. Well, what is a couple of lessons learned that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, I think the one that I've touched on originally, which I think is fascinating, is this theater strategy. Um, English leadership, uh, you know, across the pond and here, they really fundamentally had a challenge understanding the character of this war. And so they could never really adapt an appropriate strategy. And Yorktown, I think, is the is the end game, as I said, of the Southern strategy, mm-hmm. which didn't work. So I find that very interesting. Um, and yet on the, on the alliance side between the U.S. and France, they, they created a good, effective strategy. Now, granted, the, the interesting um, tidbit about Rochambeau sort of underhandedly influencing Washington's strategy I think is fascinating, but be that as it may, the Allies had a coherent unified strategy and everything they possessed ships men material was all aimed at the same objective clinton and cornwallis didn't share that fundamental understanding of what was happening there was disagreements they didn't like each other clinton withheld some support until the final stages when it was too late Mm -hmm. so that that's critical across all warfare and i think i think uh yorktown displays it well um I think, I think tactically, uh, I think one of the big lessons is overconfidence by the British. Cornwallis still had time if he would have realized that the French owned the, the bay and the British Navy had been repulsed and Washington and Rochambeau were rapidly descending upon him. He really still had a couple of weeks. He could have broken out. He could have, he could have broken out or moved across to that Gloucester point. He could have... He could have done something, but he didn't because he still was overconfident, especially against the inadequate American foe that he'd been facing. And, you know, that that got him in the end because he really probably could have broken out. Oh, my gosh. This has absolutely been fascinating. Uh, Retired General Chris Petty, thank you so much. Uh, The Battle of Yorktown and and this Independence Day it's just a, it's just a great day to celebrate what these uh, these soldiers did uh, back at the Battle of Yorktown. So, Chris Petty, thank you so much. My pleasure, Kim. And be sure and check out BattleDigest.com. That's BattleDigest.com. And our quote for today is from Lord North of the British Parliament when he learned of Cornwallis' surrender. Oh, God, it's all over. So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, and strive for high ideals. And like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. This is Kim Munson signing off. God bless you, and God bless America.